Welcome to the Five Day Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Lance Ward, and I will be walking us through some highlights in this week's readings of Scripture. You can download a copy of this reading plan in the description of this podcast, and you can also find it at 5daybiblereading.com. And whatever podcasting service you use, don't forget to leave us a review just so more people might be able to latch on and listen themselves. So we're in week 38 this week. This week's readings, Isaiah 64 through 66, 2 Kings 21 through 23, 2 Chronicles 33 through 35, Nahum, Psalm 71, 73, and 149, and finally 2 Corinthians 2 through 6. Finishing up Isaiah, we see a familiar verse cited in 1 Corinthians 2, No eye has seen, no ear has heard. We talked about this a few weeks ago and how it doesn't mean what most people take it to mean. Notice the context here in what Isaiah is talking about. He's contrasting the one true God and false gods. So what he's saying is no one has ever seen or heard of a God like the one we know. There is no God like that one. Notice also he says he acts on behalf of those who wait for him. It doesn't say he acts on behalf of the one who offers the best sacrifices or who offers the best payments or moral life. That's the way worldly religions operate. But our God needs nothing. We cannot appease him with our little trinkets of morality. We, we can't impress him with our good citizenship or perfect Sunday school attendance. God is most drawn to the one who acknowledges his or her need for him, the one whose heart cries out, Be merciful to me, a sinner. In Isaiah 65, 17, you also see a concept familiar to the New Testament. For I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or, or will come to mind. I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her, which really reminds me of Revelation 21, 1 through 4, or 2 Peter 3. Still upcoming readings in our plan, but you may know those as well. In 2 Kings 21 through 23 and 2 Chronicles 33 through 35, uh, as I was reading this, you might be thinking the same thing I am. I'm growing weary of Kings and Chronicles. Not because I'm growing weary of God's Word, but I'm growing weary of these repetitious and mostly sad accounts of Israel's kings. They can wear on you. They're kind of like, and we just got through a pretty hot summer here, they're kind of like the dog days of summer when you wonder if the heat will ever end. It's just frustrating reading. God's people continue to go astray, led by corrupt kings who either disregard the law or just don't know much about it. So as I'm reading through this, one of the things I try to do, especially when I get bogged down into reading it, it's not boring reading, it's just sort of frustrating reading, where you're, you, you want to say to these people, turn around, stop doing this. So, but then I think, what are some general lessons I can take away? Is there any timeless principle in that? Well, if nothing else, when I read through these things, I sometimes ask myself, how is my heart in any way like the actions of these kings and their followers? Where in my life am I going my own way and not listening to or trusting in God? If we can see ourselves in the people of old, it may just help us to develop more spiritually and address the blind spots we may have, to be more sensitive to God's voice in our lives. It can be tempting in these accounts to say, well, I'm glad I'm not like that. 
But one of the common threads running through Scripture is that we are more like that than we might think. We are constantly in need of God's gracious correction. And so as you read through these, and as I do, I try to ask myself, is there anything in my heart that is beginning to look like what I'm reading here? And if so, Lord, deal with me on that. Well, after the mostly good reign of Hezekiah, Judah returns to its old ungodly ways under Manasseh and Ammon. Manasseh's evil, in fact, leads to a promised future of God's wrath on Judah. Ammon, or Ammon, continues the disobedience, and between the two kings, 57 years will pass before another good king comes in named Josiah. Think about that. 57 years of evil in charge. Now, you probably noticed this, but I have a lot of gray hair, but I've not quite even lived that long. I'm close, but I haven't quite lived that long. Maybe the only way most of us can relate to a reign of that kind of length is the reign of Queen Elizabeth. But she was good. She was kind. She was admirable. Well, anyway, in just 57 years, what we see is that all the good Hezekiah did is forgotten and wiped out. They even managed in that time to lose the law itself. How in the world do you lose the law of God? All I know is that in the grand scheme of things, it didn't take long, just took a couple of generations. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? One generation can experience revival and the obvious presence of God's work, yet it's so easy for one generation of humans to forget. This was not just true then. It's also possible now. In the Psalms, I might title Psalm 71 as a psalm for the long haul. The psalmist has walked with God since a young age, verses 5 and 6 say, but he doesn't take for granted that such will always be the case. His fear in verse 9 is the prospect that God will discard him in his old age. You know, as I have aged and acquired more gray hair than many of my peers, I am learning to take nothing for granted, including especially my walk with God. There are no guarantees in life. Temptations may come. Things may arise in our lives to draw us away from Godward affections. And this reminds me of the story of a 20 or 30-something asking a godly 80-something-year-old when temptation in life finally slows down or when it ends. The older man's response? Not until glory. This psalm is a reminder to pray for our older selves. As we age, we might slow down, but our enemy never stops his assaults. So let us pray, and I think that's the spirit of this psalm. Let us pray that as we grow older, we will continue to grow more holy. May we have the humility and foresight to do this, to pray ahead that we may finish as well as we've started, modeling a steadfast faith that will go with us to our graves. Psalm 73 is the first of several psalms written by Asaph. Though most psalms are written by David, there are several other authors, and Asaph is one of them, and his are found in chapters 73 through 83. And for me, and I told you this last week, Psalm 73 is one of my personal favorites. When Asaph wrote this, it sounds like he was experiencing an Ecclesiastes type of season in life where injustice was reigning, where good things were happening to bad people. In this period, Asaph ultimately had a problem not just with his unjust oppressors, but even with God, who seemed to be standing by doing nothing. I'm sure we've all been through similar seasons where we wonder why the ungodly are getting away with evil while God apparently remains silent, disinterested, maybe even uninvolved. 
That is where Asaph is. But at verse 16, did you see with me his pivot? He pivots as he says, and then I entered God's sanctuary. We don't know if this was a moment where he actually walked into a physical setting of worship, or he may have had a vision of the Lord, the actual heavenly sanctuary of God. We we don't know for sure, but what we do know is that in the throes of his frustration, Asaph suddenly gained perspective. While evil people were presently getting away with what they were doing, he gets the perspective that this would not always be the case. Though judgment often seems far away in a world gone mad, God's judgment is far from fiction. He will one day make things right, and when he does, the unrighteous will have no defense, no escape. Their enjoyments in evil may have been long in life, but their end will be swift, sudden, terrifying. Now notice here an important fact. This sanctuary experience does not change Asaph's circumstances, but it does change his perspective. And from this new perspective comes one of the most treasured passages in our Psalms, which begins, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth I desire nothing but you. One other thing that helps me to see the hand of God threading the scriptures together here is Asaph begins this psalm with a reference to the pure in heart. There's only one other place in our Bibles where that phrase is found, and I didn't know this until a few years ago when I was studying Psalm 73, and I looked up the phrase pure in heart. And if you do that, you only find one other place in Scripture, in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Asaph was pure in heart, and though his world around him was shaken, what he got was better than changing circumstances. Asaph saw God. This idea is also reflected in Paul's words we read in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says, Outwardly we are wasting away, but inwardly we are being renewed day by day. As we do what? As we look. As we look not just at what is in front of us, but what is in store for us. That is what keeps us going in a world gone wrong. Future hope, future grace, and eternity in glory where sin and injustice are wiped away and righteousness saturates every nook and cranny. Speaking of 2 Corinthians, it will probably help to know some of the background of this letter, especially because of the references Paul makes to a previous letter and a previous visit. If you haven't picked up on it so far, you should soon infer that somehow the one who led these people to Christ, Paul himself, the one who poured his life into them, had come under the fires of criticism and had even been wounded by someone in their congregation. Many scholars have sought to determine the context of this letter, and there are a few different views, but here's a possible suggestion of how this letter came about. First, we can tell, obviously, that Paul wrote more letters to this church than just the two we have. When he first visited Corinth, he spent 18 months there, but sometime after he left, he got wind of immorality in the church, which we see in 1 Corinthians 5. Now, 2 Corinthians might be a follow-up letter, but many believe there was a letter even before 1 Corinthians where Paul was sharper and more direct. Then when he was in Ephesus, he got further news of trouble at Corinth, and the Corinthians wrote to him asking for clarification on some points. So what we believe happened there is he wrote 1 Corinthians in response. Then later, Timothy, having visited Corinth, reported more trouble to Paul. False teachers had come in, and they had also portrayed Paul as a false apostle. The urgency of this prompted Paul to make another visit referred to in chapter 2, verse 1, as the painful visit. 
In this visit, it sounds like an individual in the church may have publicly insulted Paul, as we might see in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, chapter 7, verse 12, and few at the time, if any, came to Paul's defense. And so, heartbroken, Paul returned to Ephesus, where he wrote a more severe letter. From this, he heard that there had been repentance, much to his relief. So, if you followed all that, if that theory is correct, 2 Corinthians is a response to these things, where Paul speaks to their repentance and confronts the corruption of the false apostles who have spoken ill of him. For that reason, we can probably say that this may be Paul's most personal letter, where he bears his own soul and the pain he has endured. He also doesn't hold a lot back when it comes to defending his apostleship and calling out the ones who have labeled him a false apostle, when in reality, they are the false ones. Personally, I think this letter is perhaps Paul's most underrated and undertaught letter. In this letter, in his own words, his humanity is obvious. Here's this bold apostle of God who has been through the ringer, going so far as to despair in one period of darkness. In this letter, he lays out his emotions and his vulnerabilities, but also sticks to his guns on the truth and those who deliver it. He is tender-hearted, but he's also firm. And it is apparent in this letter that Paul loves the Corinthian church, as messed up as it may be, and he wants nothing more for them than their continued partnership in the gospel and spiritual growth. His pastor's heart shines through this letter, so much so that some place it alongside 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus as another possible pastoral epistle. In that light, 2 Corinthians should be recommended reading for anyone sensing a call to ministry. One quick observation from this week in one of its well-known verses is 517. You probably know this by heart. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation— The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Maybe you notice that the preceding verses are not speaking of conduct or morality, but a changed mindset, a new perspective, a perspective that sees Jesus differently than we did before we came to know him. Though this new creature idea certainly affects our behavior, it first impacts our perspective, like Asaph's perspective in Psalm 73. And without such a perspective, We have nothing. We who belong to Christ are not moralists. We are changed people from the inside out. We now see things differently, so we then act and think differently. With that in mind, can those around you say that you are a new creation? Do they see you in you? Do they see you differently, and do they see in you a different approach to thinking and to acting? Think about that this week, and next week we will read in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, Zephaniah. We'll start Jeremiah chapter 1 through 10, and we'll go to Psalm 74, 75, 130, and then 2 Corinthians 7 through 11. So look forward to being back with you next week. Have a great weekend and a great week until then. <music>